We have become politically more divided than we have been in a long time. Why is this? What's happening to us? Why do we argue so much with each other about racism, constitutional rights, border security, about freedom? What is it that we get so upset about? And why are we so tribal? And what conditions make us so divided now? What is it in the current era of human history that makes us so upset with each other? Every week, we invite a thinker who will shine a light on the question, why are we so angry? This is Shorts from the Stelt with the podcast, Why Are We So Angry? Your bi-weekly podcast about the troubled condition of our democracy, the fear of oppression, and the question, why are we so angry? Today, we're going to talk about fake news. What is it? Is it something new? Can we do something about it? Or do we have to accept it as a necessary evil? And can we then perhaps learn how to deal with it? My first conversation is with Stephen Roche, a young psychologist doing graduate work at Cambridge who is studying the emergence of fake news and the psychology of social media. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, I'm uh, very pleased that you, uh, that you said yes to, uh, to our request. Um, so let the first question be, because it's about fake news. What is fake news exactly? Um, so fake news is used to refer to a broad amount of things. So researchers will often talk about misinformation when they're referring to fake news. And uh, this is often an umbrella term that refers to a lot of different things. So it could refer to conspiracy theories, which are often like complex theories that there's some sinister person in power who is doing bad things. Um, it could also refer to um, rumors. So uh these can be unintentionally spread or intentionally spread. It could be rumors about politicians. Um, there could be accidentally spread fake news, like someone shares a piece um, of information that is false. Or uh, there can also be disinformation. So researchers usually refer to disinformation to talk about um, propaganda or intentionally spread fake news. So politicians might spread disinformation about the opposing party because they'll get some sort of political benefit out of it. So um, yeah, essentially fake news can refer to all of those things. Right. And would you say, since we are so politically divided now, would you say there's more fake news on the right or is there more fake news on the left wing media? Or can't you say that? Yeah, uh, so the research that I'm aware of shows that there tends to be more fake news on the right. Um, so around the 2016 election, we saw a lot of fake news that was um, supporting Trump. There were some very popular headlines, like uh, apparently one of the most popular headlines uh, in the weeks leading up to the Trump election was a false headline about the Pope endorsing Trump for president. That was, um, I think, according to BuzzFeed News, an investigation showed that that was either the most popular headline or one of the most popular headlines. So right before the Trump election, we did see a lot of fake news headlines that were supporting Trump specifically. And we also know that there were foreign influence campaigns. There um, were campaigns from Russia that were specifically supporting Trump. They would create fake news about Trump or they would just sort of create divisive posts that, you know, aimed to create division in America. But um, 
I'm, I'm aware of both experimental studies and computational social science studies that show that conservatives tend to share more fake news and there tends to be more fake news supporting conservative candidates. Also, what we know about um, President Trump is he frequently did make a lot of false claims and uh, there were frequent fact checks of him. So I, I think that's one reason we have talked about fake news so much since the 2016 election. There was certainly fake news before then, but I think the Trump era brought in um, sort of a resurgence of it in the public conversation. Right, because I think it's not exactly new, right? I mean, spreading lies and rumors has happened ever since the dawn of humanity. No, it's not new. And uh, there were always rumors. There was always sort of sensationalistic journalism that didn't really um, have high standards of truth and veracity. I think there are a few things that are happening nowadays that uh, make us talk about it more. Um, so there's, of course, rising political polarization. The United States is more polarized now than it has been in the um, since 40 years ago when they started measuring polarization consistently using public opinion surveys. Uh, polarization is at its highest time now since the beginning of when they measured it. So we have this rising polarization. Uh, we also have this new technology. We have social media platforms that have only really been around in their current form for about 10 years. And um, what we know from research about social media platforms is that false news can go very viral on social media platforms. Sometimes some studies suggest that fake news can become more viral than cases of true news because fake news plays into emotions such as uh, surprise and outrage and derogation of the opposing party. So we've seen these instances of viral fake news. We've seen instances where misinformation integrates with social media al uh, algorithms that amplify misinformation. So I think just this time of rising political polarization and uh, just this new technology of social media has made us talk more about fake news and be a bit more concerned about it. Right. Well, I definitely want to talk about uh, social media in a bit. But first, I want to talk about, uh, about why it actually is so persistent. Um, you wrote an article in The Guardian once that was called Why People Ignore Facts. So, mm. so why is that? Why do people ignore facts? Let's see. I think I wrote that one, that piece for Psychology Today. Oh, um, I'm sorry. I, no, it's, it's no worries. I have another piece for The Guardian. Let me see. That was a few years ago. But um, yeah, so I, I had a few points that I made in that article. Um, first, I was drawing on theories of reasoning uh, from scholars like um, Hugo Mercier. He's a French scholar who essentially thinks that reasoning did not evolve for truth-seeking, but instead reasoning evolved for um, coalitional or group-based or social motivations. So um, this theory is called the argumentative theory of reasoning, and it suggests that we often reason to um, persuade others in our group or to um, sort of rationalize ideas or to, um, so like our uh, 
beliefs can fit with the desired beliefs of a group. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I talked about how reasoning evolved for social motives as opposed to um, truth-seeking motives. Um, I was also drawing on some of the work of uh, J. Uh, J. Van Babel, um, who is a collaborator of mine and who I will do a postdoc with at NYU when I'm finished with my PhD. And he has a model of political belief called the identity-based model of political belief. And he essentially thinks that we have both um, accuracy-based and uh, social motivations. And sometimes our motivation to hold accurate beliefs conflicts with our social motivations to hold beliefs that are desired by a group. And sometimes, you know, as, as an average citizen, uh, it might be more beneficial to hold a political belief that doesn't cause me conflict within my group or my family and sort of helps me get along as opposed to holding true beliefs. Um, so there are all these weird quirks of the human brain and human psychology uh, that make it so in many instances, truth isn't the fundamental thing that we desire or we are able to rationalize ourselves into um, believing things that aren't true. Right. And wow, that's interesting. So how far is that? How far can that go? Can I be, be can I be made to believe that my shirt that is red, that my red shirt is actually blue, or is it is it not that that serious? How far is them? You know, it's it's it, it seems like this is really how um, the question here is really like okay, how in you know, how much are you possible? Or is, are you able to 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 um, to mold the brain to believe something that's really not true? How far can that go? Yeah, I, I think it it would depend on which psychologists that you talk to, because some psychologists certainly believe in a strong theory of motivated reasoning in which we are able to rationalize a lot of things. Um, other scholars think that motivated reasoning is less of a problem. And basically the umbrella, the term motivated reasoning refers to when our motivations such as our political motivations, our group-based motivations that impact our beliefs. Uh, but, but I want to give an example based on a well-known study that I believe was conducted by um, Dan Kahan. It, it was a study where he showed people a math problem. And uh, it, it, was a, it was like a word problem. So it was about like, um, like skin cream or something. And he was like, he essentially had a math problem that had um, a clear answer. And um, what he found is not surprising. People who have better numer numerical abilities or math abilities did better at answering this word problem. Uh, but then he changed uh, the word problem in a separate condition. And he had participants answer a math problem where the answer went against their desired political beliefs. And uh, so like an example is, uh, like there is some policy where um, like a gun control policy where they will ban use of guns. And uh, then the answer to this math problem shows that uh, banning guns actually increased crime. This goes against the intuitions of most liberals. He also had a version for conservatives that sort of went against their intuitions. And what he found is that uh, highly intelligent uh, 
people, people with strong math skills and strong numerical ability, even though they did well at the regular math problem, um, they did quite poorly at the math problem that went against their political beliefs. And there ended up, and there was no correlation or even slight inverse correlation between math ability and solving this problem when something went against your political beliefs. So I think there are many cases where our typical logical reasoning or numerical reasoning can be interrupted by our political group-based affiliations. That's amazing. So that really means that for these people that were admittedly pretty clever because they solved those math problems, for them it was right. more, more important to be part of a group than to surrender to their intellectual insight, their own intellectual insight. Right. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that was at least the, the author's conclusion from the study. I, I do have to add, though, there is active debate in sort of the fake news literature about what people's primary motives are for sharing fake news. And there's actually like some disagreement. So uh, some scholars think that a lot of our primary motivations for sharing fake news are partisan motivations. We often share news that derogates the political outgroup. And uh, correlational research shows that people who score highest on political polarization will show the share the most fake news headlines on Twitter. So there's a lot of evidence for this perspective, the sort of motivated reasoning or partisan identity perspective of sharing fake news. But there are other scholars who think that partisan motivations don't quite matter as much. And they, um, they believe that sort of what matters in people sharing fake news is it's more about inattention and lack of reasoning. They've sort of advanced this inattentional account of fake news sharing. Uh, so they have correlational research where they show that people who score low on something known as the cognitive reflection test, which is sort of a series of math problems analyze analytical, that measure analytical ability, they tend to believe more in fake news. And... Um, they also show that when people aren't paying attention that much, they tend to report intentions to share fake news more often. But they also show that if you nudge someone to think more about accuracy, um, people will share less fake news. So, so these scholars believe that it's more sort of, they have one paper where they say that lack of reasoning matters more than motivated reasoning. Mm -hmm. uh, my personal perspective is that it's a bit of both. Mm -hmm. When people share a fake news article online, there are probably strong partisan motivations or they're sharing it because they think it's interesting or because mm -hmm. uh, their friends will like it. Um, because you know, social media doesn't really emphasize accuracy and more emphasizes is sharing stuff that will get you positive social rewards. Right. But I think there is also a... Um, sort of lack of analytical thinking and lack of attention component in sharing fake news. So I, I think that would probably be the best theories of fake news sharing would sort of integrate both of these perspectives. Right. And if you don't look at the one perspective, are people actually, let's say the people who are able to do the analysis and mm -hmm. kind of should be able to say, okay, this is fake. Are they actually intentionally, knowingly, uh, spreading fake news or is their brain somehow telling them that uh, fake news is actually the fake news they're spreading or believing is actually real? Do we, do we know that? Uh, yeah, again, I, I think this is, this is a tricky question because uh, um, 
these scholars, uh, Penny, uh, Gordon Pennycook and David Rand, they have a recent paper that when you um, ask someone directly, if you say, uh, when you are sharing an article online, how important is it that you only share accurate news? Most people will report that it's very important for them to only share accurate news. So when you ask them directly, people have these standards of wanting to share accurate news, but it's a bit of a puzzle why so many people do, do seem to not care about accuracy online. And I think it's a bit of an unanswered puzzle. Um, I mean, there is another paper that came out recently that say, says uh, that has found that when the social rewards are high enough, so if you tell someone that they will get a lot of likes if they share a conspiracy theory, people are willing to forego accuracy to share really, um, to post that uh, they believe will lead to high anticipated social reward. And um, there's also another paper uh, naming something called the interesting if true effect, which shows that people want to share interesting information that is not necessarily true because they think it will be interesting if it is true. So I think there are a lot of things going on here and uh, there aren't extremely clear answers, but I, I guess my perspective of it is essentially you have, um, you have accuracy goals competing with these other goals. And when you're on social media, you're seeing a lot of political debates. You're seeing a lot of social rewards. People are giving you likes and you're not really, you might not be as motivated to share accurate content, especially if social media algorithms are amplifying different sorts of content. Well, we get back to social media now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about that. So social media, you say, has, um, has, uh, uh, exacerbated, has enlarged the, uh, the amount of fake news that's around. Um, so, well, one question I would like to ask is, um, is, is fake news harmful? Uh, and is social media harmful? And are there maybe better ways to, to deal with, uh, with social media than, than, you know, the ways we're using now? Um, in terms of is fake news harmful, yes, I, I will say yes. Not, not all fake news is as harmful as other fake news is. I would say a case that is particularly harmful is um, anti-fake uh, news that encourages vaccine hesitancy. And this mm -hmm. is unfortunately very common. Uh, there have been studies showing that on like official posts from the CDC, for instance, on Facebook, that share reliable information about vaccines, that a lot of the comments will be um, uh, comments expressing doubt about vaccination. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are experimental studies that show that if you show someone a piece of fake news that encourages doubt about vaccination, it lowers people's intentions to get vaccinated. So that's a pressing public health consequence. How can we deal with that? Because you see that you see that a lot that uh, there's a large group of people who is not willing to believe. Um, it's basically the opposite of fake news, right? It's either you believe something that's not true, or you don't believe something that's actually obviously true. And you see a large group of of people who is not able to 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 make that analysis, or doesn't have 
well, I don't want to sound pretentious, but doesn't have the education to make the analysis. Or, right. Well, how, yeah. how can we do with that? Yeah, and I mean, there is an educational component as well. When you look at conspiracy theories and when you look at vaccine hesitancy, it does tend to correlate with um, lower education. So, of course, education mm -hmm. is important, but then so are sort of the um, cues you get on social media from partisan leaders or from influencers. We actually have a paper that's currently under review um, that we worked on where we... So what we did is we we had a survey where we asked people how they felt about the COVID-19 vaccine, and then we asked for their Twitter handle. And using their Twitter handle, we were able to download all of the accounts that these users followed. So we were able to look at the uh, accounts that people followed and how those correlated with vaccine hesitancy. And our results were really interesting and not entirely surprising. So. Um, what we found is the most vaccine-hesitant participants followed influencers such as, we have a list of it in our paper. Um, so it was influencers like Candace Owens, mm -hmm. Joe Rogan, mm -hmm. Ben Shapiro. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a mix of sort of um, like uh, conservative media members, conservative politicians, and conservative influencers. And then you found that people who were higher in vaccine confidence they tended to follow more liberal folks. They followed people like the president or the vice president. So we saw in the Twitter accounts, people followed this extreme polarization of vaccine attitudes. And a lot of this started with Donald Trump expressing a lot of doubt about the vaccine. So in terms of what we can do about it, there was a great study that came out in the journal PNAS recently that um, essentially they did an experiment where they would show um, conservatives um, a video uh, and a text of Trump mm -hmm. expressing support for the COVID-19 vaccine. And I believe, I believe this was an actual true video because Trump has gotten vaccinated. I think he said some positive things. They might've had to dig up messages. He did, in um, the end. yeah, yeah. Even yeah. under Biden, he said positive things about the vaccine. He said something yeah. like, yeah, take it. If you don't want to take it, that's also fine. Something like that. Yeah, yeah so if, if I'm recalling correctly, they dug up messages like that. I believe they used true messages by them, hit Trump, and they showed it to conservatives. And this actually increased vaccine in, intentions to get vaccinated by a fair amount among conservatives. So I think that when mm. issues like vaccination and social distancing become so polarized and uh, people who are anti-vax, as you might say, live in these sort of conservative echo chambers and aren't receiving reliable information. I think it's really important for um, party leaders and uh, uh, politicians and influencers who might be more conservative to express reliable information. I think that's one way to change it. Unfortunately, a lot of them aren't willing to, to do that, but yeah. that would be one solution. I mean, another solution that is would be really important would be for social media companies to take some better responsibility for content moderation and not amplifying misinformation but you know that's that's another that's another topic hey so i have, an, I have an, in, another interesting idea because we we are risking we're at risk of becoming more partisan now but in your research did you find you must have found uh examples of obvious forms of fake news that was being spread by the liberal media or haven't you 
Yeah, I mean... Can you give an example? Uh, yeah, so um, obviously the, the left does share um, misinformation. Right. Um, it, it's not limited to the right. We tend to see it more on the right. And of course, most psychologists, including myself, tend to be more liberal. So, you know, you can't, uh, you can't sort of ignore that issue. I, I, I think that these disparities are true. And psychologists, while being liberal, you know, they, they are also truth-seeking. But, um, but yeah, the left is definitely susceptible to fake news and conspiracy theories. Let me see if I can think of an example. Um, I, one example I can think of is, do you remember when everyone was, like, outraged about the Covington Catholic uh, high school kids who were wearing Trump MAGA hats. Do you yeah. remember that situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were like, look at him smiling at that guy. Yeah, yeah. He's, it was this he's Native being... American guy, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, what I recall is they saw a very short video clip and then they assumed a lot about these this kid's intentions. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of it ended up being false and there was a lot more to the story and there was a lot going on beforehand and i think what happens with social media and this is both the left and the right is situations like that that evoke a lot of outrage people will see a very short video clip and then they will assume so much about it and th those assumptions will be false so i think that's an instance i don't recall every detail of that situation but that's an instance where falsehoods were being spread um i don't know can you think of more examples from from the left of Oof, uh, not from the top of my head. Yeah. But that's probably because I'm biased. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's the me one too. thing I always think, okay, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and I'm sure if we ask someone who is more right-wing, they will probably have say a lot. heard yeah, a lot a of what yeah. they, Oh, yeah, there's this and there's that and there's like that. And I talk yeah. to a lot of right-wing people, and honestly, I think one of the reasons I, I do this podcast is that I found most of them very kind, hard-working people. <laughs> and yeah. They're not really so so different from, uh, in many ways, from liberals. Yeah, no, me, me too. I, I have a few um, more conservative friends at Cambridge right. um, who, who, who are great friends, and uh, I think something that happens, and there's a lot of research on this, is that uh, people have very strong misunderstandings of the opposing party. And this is partially due to like what they see in media. Um, when people are surveyed, the reality is most of America is like pretty politically moderate, not very politically engaged, but people will assume that members of the opposing party tend to be more extreme. So there's research showing people assume members of the opposing party have more extreme beliefs. Right. People will also um, like greatly uh, overestimate. Um, so there, there's one study that shows that um, people think that something like, I'm not sure if I can remember the exact statistics, but they ask liberals, like how many conservatives do you think make over 250,000 a year? The liberals will say something like, "Yeah, I've seen that. like forty-five percent." When the reality is closer to to five, it's very small. Yeah. And then it's the same for um, liberals. Conservatives will hold huge misperceptions about that. Yeah. And um, 
liberals and conservatives also have incorrect meta perceptions. And a meta perception is like how much you think, like what you think the other side thinks of you. So mm -hmm. I, as a liberal, will think that conservatives hate liberals much more than they actually do and vice versa. So uh, this is sometimes under the umbrella term of false polarization uh, because like people think that I guess that we're more polarized than we are or that the other side hates them more than they really do. So I, th I think there's, there's also really good research showing that um, correcting people's misperceptions about the opposing party is a really effective way to reduce polarization. So if you just give people um, some information about uh, telling them that their perceptions of the other party are incorrect and are exaggerated, this will reduce polarization a very amount. So yeah, I think so part of that, sorry for interrupting. That reminds me of the mm -hmm. contact uh, hypothesis uh, right. that I read about. Maybe you can explain that a bit. And um, it it seems to me that it doesn't really work well in social media. But you 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 should also maybe shed your light on that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. Yeah, you you are kind of right. I think I know what experiment you're thinking of. So, uh, what in is general, it, first the, of all, the contact hypothesis. What is that about? That's it's yeah, an old so the idea. Contact from the 60s, hypothesis. Yeah, it's a very old idea in social psychology that thinks that we will essentially reduce prejudice toward um, outgroups if we um, come in more contact with them, and in, in particular, uh, repeated positive content. So, like if you. Um, so like integrating schools, for instance, and uh, having more diverse schools will uh, reduce people's racial animosity, for right. instance. And there's, there's a lot of positive evidence about the contact hypothesis. Like it does work in a number of settings, but it doesn't work in every setting. Um, so there is a pretty well-known study. It's from 2018 by uh, Christopher Bale. And it's an excellent study where he had a group of Americans follow Twitter bots. And these Twitter bots would retweet accounts from the opposing party. So if I was in it as a liberal, like I would see a lot of conservative influencers, like maybe like uh, politicians or people like Ben Shapiro being retweeted by this Twitter bot. Um, and the experiment had pretty surprising results. So it actually backfired. So uh, when he surveyed people after the experiment, Republicans became a bit more Republican and liberals became a bit more liberal. So in terms mm -hmm. of their political beliefs. Mm -hmm. So there was this backfire effect, which was a really kind of surprising and intriguing result. And uh, there's a lot of speculation as to why this backfire effect happened. And I talked about this experiment a bit in my recent paper because I had a recent paper about how social media amplifies outgroup animosity. And my perspective behind this experiment is because social media tends to amplify such extreme viewpoints, like social media will amplify things that are outrageous and negative about outgroups. Mm, um, right. And especially politicians will do this. Um, it might not be very positive if you're seeing the other side trashing your own side. So that's probably why it backfired online. So social media, unless maybe you're following someone a bit more um, positive, uh, might not be the best place for the contact hypothesis to work out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's actually, I think what I see in social media is that it, 
it's the same as I see in the in the media is that there's two groups and um, they they don't really cross the border towards in general they don't really cross the border towards the other group so if you are a conservative and you're on Facebook then you tend to like things that are more conservatively inclined like you know you tend to worry more about uh, problems at the border or mm-hmm. um, crime in New York City or right. um, taxes that are too high things like that whereas if you're liberal you, you care about other things and the algorithms on the algorithms on Facebook work in such a way that they tend to find things that are similar to the things that you've liked so you immediately fall in sort of like a you know you fall into this 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 gap of um, yeah you fall into a gap of similar beliefs and you don't really you're not really often presented with a belief that's not uh, that's that's not yours it seems to me right i think that's true and there is some evidence that um like that social media algorithms will feed you more like-minded material but i think a lot of it research suggests a lot of this echo chamber phenomenon is also people engaging in partisan sorting so they're essentially just self-selecting into groups because when people turn on tv so, so a they're doing will it themselves probably... and they're not like it's not the algorithm that presents it but it's their their own behavior that that makes that happen you're saying i i think it's a bit of both and i i think they interact with each other the thing about like making inferences about social media algorithms there is some evidence and people have come up with clever ways to try to look at the influence of algorithms online but because social media companies aren't transparent about how their algorithms work or they don't share very much data researchers are often not able to make very firm conclusions about like how much algorithms are you know, sorting us into um, sort of like-minded communities. But um, but I, my guess is that it probably is a little bo- bit of both. It also deter- depends on what social media platform you're on. Uh, but I think a lot of it is people self-selecting too. I mean, people move into, um, people live in like uh, cities or neighborhoods with like-minded communities. We were mm-hmm. talking before the podcast about how um, like a, a liberal will often move to a city with a bunch of liberals and a conservative might stay in sort of like a rural area. There's a lot of uh, partisan sorting yeah. geographically and yeah. in the communities people choose yeah. to live in, which is not that different from what ha- what's happening on social media. It might, it might be slightly worse on social media. I don't know, but I, I think a lot of it can be attributed to self-selection too. So you have all this. You have people moving, let's say liberals moving to the cities, conservatives staying where they are, um, there's a social media that makes things worse. There's the spread of fake news um, that's um, made made bigger by the by social media and by the media. So what can be done about it? <laughs> it seems like a pretty hopeless situation that we're in. Oh God, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's it's such a large problem that uh, it's it's hard to know what to do. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people are, have legitimate reasons to be like very frustrated or angry. Uh, People have lost so many jobs and lives due to COVID. There's extreme income inequality, climate change. So a lot of these issues, systemic racism, everything, like a lot of these issues are systemic. And uh, in some ways, I think some parts of 
polarization and everything and people being angry on social media reflects just how rightfully angry people are in real life due to a lot of these real world issues. But yeah, I, I guess if we move away from solving those real world issues, I often focus on um, social media and like what can be done there. And um, in a lot of my research has been on how uh, what tends to go most viral on social media. I have a recent paper on this called Outgroup Animosity Drives Engagement on Social Media. A lot of what tends to go viral on social media is negative content about outgroup members. Uh, this will get lots of shares, retweets, and also angry and haha reacts, uh, we found. And um, yeah, so I think something does need to be done about social media companies so that we make sure that social media just doesn't amplify this harmful content. And um, I think that's really hard because uh, social media platforms have these perverse incentives to keep us um, hooked on the platforms. They want to sell advertising revenues. They want to keep us engaged at all costs. So they will show us, they will feed us more um, posts that, uh, will often be negative about the other side or will be false, these problematic posts in order to keep us engaged on the platform. So uh, when, I, when I talk to people about what can be done about social media, my answer is often lies in like, well, it needs to be regulated. Something needs to be done. And we've had congressional hearings recently with Francis Hogan, the whistleblower who worked inside of Facebook, who's mm -hmm. shared information. So hopefully we're moving towards some sort of regulation. I think regulation might be really hard. Politicians don't know a lot about how social media works, but I, I'm starting to think it might be one of the only solutions because, you know, sometimes psychologists work with tech companies and they try to suggest like, here is something that we can do to improve the platform. Here's a nudge we can do, some sort of behavioral uh, insight that can guide how people use these platforms. But often social media companies will be unwilling to implement solutions that uh, will reduce their bottom line, that will essentially re reduce engagement. So so I, I, I think regulation might be the only answer. So, so how is that going to work? Because regulation sounds like something that's going to be uh, set out by the government. Well, that's, that's immediately going to lead to problems because if there's one thing that uh, conservatives don't like, it's um, a growing role of the government. So they're probably not going to accept that or they're not going to... Um, believe anything that uh, that's done because I mean first of all how would it look like would you say okay there's a statement is it fake or not and then if it's fake you're gonna remove it that um, sounds like censoring things it doesn't look too good to me yeah so what when I was watching these congressional hearings though what really fascinated me was conservatives and liberal politicians were like equally angry at mm, okay. Facebook. They were really upset with Facebook and it, it, it was kind of for different reasons. Like mm -hmm. yeah. liberals are liberals are more upset about misinformation. Conservatives tend to be more upset about uh, perceived censorship. Yeah. But something that these platforms really did agree on is when sort of this leaked research emerged showing that like Instagram really harms the mental health of um, teenage girls. Uh, like that that was some of the leaked information and conservatives were really upset about that. And I, I think 
something that might be more part bipartisan is that we don't want social media companies that are just producing content that keeps us engaged at all costs at the cost of our own mental health or at the cost of just amplifying incredibly divisive or false content. But yeah, I, th I think the misinformation problem in terms of it coming up with bipartisan solutions will be very difficult because conservatives and liberals do have different ideas of what constitutes misinformation. So um, yeah, and- uh, And different worries, really. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, I didn't, wanna, I didn't wanna jump onto it because I've been interrupting you too many times anyway. No, uh, please do. But you said something like, uh, these people are really in a bad situation. They are plagued by systemic racism. They've lost their jobs due to the, to the pandemic. Um, they have to deal with the, the, the consequences of climate did, change. Did that sound very liberal that to you? That sounds very liberal, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's not exactly what conservatives worry about. They worry about the government growing bigger, about taxes that increase. They worry about uh, uh, immigrants coming into the country, illegals. They worry about crime in the streets. That's their that's their base. You know, their base of worries. That's true, and I mean, also the media that we're exposed to will talk about different things. Will make different threats right. salient. So, right. like, yeah, that's that's absolutely true, and I I don't. I guess I don't really know what to do about that. But I guess mm -hmm. what impresses me is that, like, I think it's so interesting that this year it seems like a common enemy that liberals and conservatives are starting to agree on is Facebook. They're both upset. <laughs> but for different Facebook. reasons. For different reasons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for different reasons. Yeah. But some of the reasons are similar, which is some of the mental health type things. And so, I yeah, no. I And, I mean, there is some research on how, you know, having a common enemy um, can uh, reduce polarization. Um, so in some ways, I, it might be good that mm -hmm. liberals and conservatives are not directing, well, they're still directing their animosity toward each other, but maybe if they both direct it toward Facebook, that, that might be good for them. But, hey, yeah. I, read, I read about <laughs> something else. I read about your supervisor, uh, Sander van der Linden. Mm -hmm. He has developed a, a theory called the inoculation theory. Um, I, mm -hmm. I read about it wasn't completely maybe i didn't completely understand i probably didn't maybe you can can you explain a bit what it's about or and what you think of it yeah maybe so, uh, um, you, you shouldn't say that it's it's a bad that's a bad idea because you still have to get your phd <laughs> <laughs> no i think it's a great idea okay. um and uh no no it's not fake news uh so inoculation mm -hmm. theory the word kind of follows this like vaccine metaphor that like in order to inoculate someone against fake news you sort of have to give them uh, a vaccine like a small dose of the fake news and this this small dose of the fake news that um inoculates you against being susceptible to fake news is sort of basically learning the strategies of the um, fake news creator um, so you basically learn the manipulation take techniques that uh, people who create fake news or conspiratorial content use, and then you're better able to identify that fake news. And there have been lots of studies on uh, inoculation theory. It seems to work quite well. One of my favorite studies, uh, so um, Sander and uh, John Rosenbeek, who's his current um, postdoc, 
uh, they created a game called the Bad News Game. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's really fun to play. You basically take the perspective of someone who is creating fake news and you're sort of trying to uh, become this like fake news tycoon and you you learn all these techniques, like how to manipulate emotion, how to do all these things. And uh, it's fun. It's kind of this this game, but it's but it's also educational. And they have done these very large studies. So they give people surveys before and after using the game, and the game helps people um, uh-huh. identify fake news better. So um, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting because it's kind of a it's gamified inoculation. It's an educational sort of media literacy intervention that teaches someone to identify fake news. And this theory, sometimes Sander talks about pre-bunking. So we talk a lot about debunking where you're fact-checking fake news, but he thinks that we should place more emphasis on um, pre-bunking, which is essentially um, teaching people to better spot fake news, which I think is super important. Right. So what it really does then is that you, you how does it work? You, you just, you kind of experience how it is to create fake news. And then later in life, when you're actually almost creating fake news yourself, you're reminded of, uh, you know, the emotions you had in that game. And then you think, hey, maybe I shouldn't do this. Shit, I should not, I should not, I should not post this. Is is that how it it works? It? Yeah, or like you won't you won't fall for fake news if you see or it. Right, in the if future. you're the receptor, yeah, yeah, if you read it, yeah, right, yeah, essentially. And taking the perspective, I think, is sort of a good way to to learn strategies. Like he he focuses on a bunch of manipulation strategies that sort of pieces of fake news use. Like um, they manipulate emotion or they use very polarizing language. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sort of inoculates people or gives them sort of education against these strategies and makes them better at identifying fake news. And it's really clever because it's gotten like engagement of a lot of people, like a lot of people who've used the game. And um, and I, I think that it would be cool to have more educational tools that uh, are gamified like this. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Interesting. Well, Steve, I think we have discussed a lot. We have uh, we have discussed group identity. Um, what can we do about it? What's what? What can we do about fake news? What is it? What? Uh, mm-hmm. Why do people ignore facts? And what can the mind actually believe? Uh, I think we have a, we've had a pretty interesting conversation. So I'd like to thank you for your time. And well, cool. uh, thank you. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. This was Sjors van der Stelt with Why Are We So Angry? The podcast that does not take a stance on any of the issues that divide us, but instead analyzes why we are so divided. Check us out at whyarewesoangry.com. Thank you for listening.